Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is September the 13th, 2016, and this is uh, episode 1869 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Tuesday. That means it's a Just Jack show, and uh, this is going to be a show about Jack. I, I don't tend to talk about myself in the third person, but sometimes it actually applies. The show's going to be about me. It's going to be about how I grew up in the uh, the Florida swamps and the Pennsylvania woods. And it was chosen uh, from the poll for September shows. It was actually the second highest uh, voted on show uh, for this month. So it will be the second show that we do this month on a Tuesday. Um, it, it's not really going to be about me so much as the time and the place and, and the things that happened that I observed and was part of. And these stories, while unique to me, are really not unique to me. And what I mean by that is this is my perspective on these stories and the way they happen for me. There are millions of stories, just like the ones that you're going to hear today, um, that many people that grew up in the 70s and 80s would have to tell. In fact, some of you that grew up in rural areas in this time may think, gee, this sounds like me and my buddies when we grew up, and I, I hope so. As I said yesterday when I talked about telling your story uh, of where you were on 9-11, it is our stories that bind us. It is our stories that actually preserve our history. History is something we, you know, we cover with our history segment, but in the end, history is stories. And the most important history is where we came from and an understanding of what life was like before. Before could be 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago. Because that causes the question, if things were different before, and if some of those things were better, why can't they be that way again? So I hope you'll enjoy today's stories uh, from the childhood of one Jack Spierko Jr., or as his friends called him, J.J., um, and I hope it will make you think of your childhood fondly. And if you're a younger person that never lived in a time like this, I hope it will make you start to question, why can't we have times like this, at least in some way and in some places, again? Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1869. So the ep or the episode's 1869, so the year we're going to look at is 1869. Alex Shrugged has three for us today in TSP Wiki. We have Rules for Radicals. We have Samuel Clemens is Mark Twain. 
And we have the Golden Spike. I like all of those, but I'm going to read Rules for Radicals because it talks about the genesis of, well, what people think of when they think of as anarchism. Before that, though, in other news, the Prohibition Party is formed in Chicago. It makes women full party members and will add women's suffrage to the party platform. Its influence will decline after Prohibition is repealed. The Suez Canal is open for business this year, and celluloid is invented, sort of. J.W. Hyatt experiments with patented plastic substance and discovers a suitable substitute for ivory. Elephants trumpet his achievement. Billiard balls soon follow. Flexible celluloid for film will be used by 1889. Patent disputes will be resolved eventually. Anyway, let's take a look at Rules for Radicals. This is not the Saul Alinsky thing, though it may tie into that. In fact, it will. If you've ever wanted to know how anarchy got such a bad name, welcome to the world of nihilism. It's like annihilation, but less fun. A few decades ago, a philosopher figured out that critical reasoning breaks down every ideal into smaller and smaller elements until they are nil, nothingness. In other words, there is no standard, there's no ideals, there is no love, no religion, there's certainly no God. This is nihilism. The idea hasn't caught on until recently. Russian anti-conformists have been shocking the sensibilities of society, so the nihilists are sent to Siberia as cold exile in rough prisons with regular beatings. They return with a new attitude. They are no longer anti-conformists, anti-government beatniks. They are now beatniks with guns and bombs. The pamphlet, Catechism of a Revolutionist, is published this year. It will serve as a constitution for the nihilists, a sort of rules for radicals. Government officials will be attacked, often shot and blown to bits. When the perpetrators are caught, they can give no comprehensible reason for their actions. Certainly, it is not due to any hate. They simply want government to back off. But their actual goals are vague. It seems to officials that they are describing a minimalist government or no government at all. In other words, nihilism. Anarchy and terrorism are now in the same basket until Tsar Alexander is assassinated. It will only get worse. My take by Alex Shrugged. Lenin used the Russian nihilist movement as a model for his Marxist revolution. In the 1960s, Edrich Cleaver launched his Black Panther movement using Catechism of a Revolutionist. The communist radical David Horowitz described the Black Panthers in his book Radical Son. The organization eventually became self-indulgent and then violent. It frightened Horowitz into becoming a Republican. Oddly enough, Eldridge Cleaver did too. Nihilist movements have no governors, no sense of accountability to anyone but themselves. Nihilism can be powerful. Suddenly all things are possible from the most beautiful to the most grotesque. It is the annihilation of values. There is a book entitled Rules for Radicals written by Saul Alinsky. It outlines a plan for only overwhelming government institutions, humiliating one's opponents and forcing them to use violence that will ultimately discredit those institutions. As a bit of a joke, Alinsky dedicated his book to Lucifer. I don't take that too seriously, but I wonder who Alinsky's radicals are today. Well, maybe I can look into that tomorrow if Hitler is feeling better, if Hillary is feeling better. Anyway, quotation. Least we forget, at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. End quote. Dedication of the book Rules for Radicals, first edition by Saul Alinsky, removed from current editions. Interesting. Removed from current editions. I'm no student of Saul Alinsky. I am a student of anarchism, though. And I think a lot of the... Bad press that anarchism has is tied up with Russian anarchism uh, of of this time period, the mid to late 1800s going into the 1900s. It, it's also tied up in the concept of basically it's stateless communism is, is what, what what some people think of as, as anarchism. Anarchism is simply the uh, the the lack of an authority, 
right? The lack of a ruler. There are rules, but not rulers, right? Um, it is not something that can exist instantly unless people have the correct morals for it to do so. And anything is possible with it, from the best to the worst. But anarchism believes that the individual is most important toward liberty. In other words, if the individual is not free, then the masses can never be free. Where communism believes if the masses must be freed in order for the individual to have freedom. Uh, the, the source on that would be Joseph Stalin. He was making a case for communism when he said that. I'm paraphrasing. That that's indeed what it would take. That, that, that the, the dream of communism was, we'll liberate the masses first. So that people are generally free. And then we can worry about the individual. Where the anarchist said, if the individual has no liberty, then there is no liberty. The only way we can measure liberty is that each individual can do as he sees fit until such time he is ha harming another person's person or their property. If you're not hurting someone else physically or the property of another person, then you're not committing any harm. And you should be left to yourself. And you should be able to self-organize and be with who you want and not with who you want. It's the way that it is. But you shouldn't be able to use force and authority to get what you want. So in other words, if you want to have a, a, a town that has all white people because you're a racist asshole, you can do that, but you got to figure out how to do that in a way that doesn't get in the way of anybody else's rights. Like you have to buy the whole damn thing and make it a private club, and then you're welcome to do that if you want to. And if you can get enough people to go there and be with you and be successful with it, that's fine. But if you fall flat on your ass, that's your own problem. You can't make other people participate in it. So you're allowed to be an asshole when you're an anarchist. You just don't get to use any authority to enforce your assholeism on other people. It's kind of interesting. And what you notice is that people that are true assholes, people that are true psychopaths, people that are the very people you worry about, well, what would we do in an anarchy about these people? Those people never want anarchy. Not real anarchy. They'd never sign on for it. It wouldn't be safe for them in a true anarchy. My thoughts by Jack Spirico. Not really historical context there, just, just my thoughts. Anyway, let, let's get into uh, talking about the main topic today, which is, you know, me growing up. And w when I went to do this, I, I thought about the fact that, you know, it can seem kind of egotistical. Let me tell you all about myself. Um, but really, that's not how I want to come off of, uh, off with this. I want to, to help you go back to a time and for some of you to remember it, for some of you to become aware of it, because those of you who are like 30 and under, you really never got this. You missed it by 15 years. I mean, I, I, I hate to put it that way, but you did. And some of you that are my age, you missed it by geography. I mean, really. Some of you guys, even that are older than me, you missed it by geography. You just lived in places where this type of thing wasn't there. But there was still a, a spirit of adventure uh, for kids uh, in the 70s and 80s. When I was a kid, we walked the bus alone. Many of us rode bikes several miles to school and other activities. We didn't have social media and the Internet. We grew up with slingshots, BB guns, and old single-shot shotguns. They kicked like hell, but hey, they were small enough for us to shoulder properly. We broke bones, we skinned knees, we fell out of trees, and as long as no one was dead or paralyzed, we just went on with life. Scratches, scars, and pain were teachers who taught us swiftly the consequences of stupidity. It was in this world a young blonde boy named Jack Spirico Jr., his friends called him JJ, grew up in two very different places. 
Until he was 14, he wandered the Florida swamps, the shores of the St. Johns River, and argued with alligators on golf courses. In the summer of 1986, he and his father piled into a very old Oldsmobile station wagon, painting with, painted with honest-to-God black tire paint. With them, they carried guns and the old man's entire life savings in cash. Nineteen hours later, they pulled into the grandparents' driveway. The boy and his father spent the summer finding the family a new home. The father returned to Florida to retrieve the rest of the family. The boy stayed behind and worked on his skills with a bow and took his hunter's safety course. Later that year, he would take his first deer with a bow. We will walk with this kid and remember what it was like growing up in the woods not so long ago today. I want to start out with the fact, for me, it was always the woods. When I was a little kid and we lived in some apartments that we'll talk about here in a second, there weren't any real woods, but there were wooded areas. And you would always find me in the wooded areas or on the lake or down in little spots, any place that I could get away from people. And later, as we moved into places where I had real woods to play in, they were, they were like my second home. I don't know what it is about the woods, the forests, the swamps, natural situations for human beings, but part of me really believes that it's our natural habitat. And that children have yet to be purged of this understanding that it's their natural habitat. And you can see it. You take little kids that have never been to the woods before on a, a hike through a trail, and the first thing they want to do is get off the main trail onto a little side trail. I know that was the way it was with my son. But with me, it was a literal obsession. Hunting, fishing, animals, snakes, lizards, alligators, you name it. Dangerous or not, I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to be involved with it. And I wanted to be in the woods. Growing up, I think, in Florida, maybe maybe part of like really kind of reinforcing it was it's hot in Florida. Very hot in Florida for most of the year, and the sun would beat down on you. But in the woods, it was cooler. It was shaded. It felt like home. And as we go through the stories today, some of them don't take place in the woods, but that's always kind of where they're anchored back to. And if, if you feel the way I do about the forest, if you feel the way I do about the woods, if you feel the way I do about being in the trees and being in true nature, then it, I think maybe it will make more sense. If not, try to think about Sometime you took a walk in the forest or the woods or the, 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 the jungle or wherever, the swamps, somewhere that you were, that you paused for a moment and felt really right. You felt like this is where I need to be. This is how I've always felt in the woods. Well, like I said, the first apartments we ever moved into um, in Jacksonville, I was very young. I think I was probably just just starting first grade uh, about this time, so you do the math and figure out how old that is. I didn't have real woods, and we lived there for a couple of years, but this apartment had something that, to me, was an incredible gift. It had a lake. It was a pretty big lake. It was, uh, I think Fountain Lakes Apartments was the name of the uh, the apartment complex, if I remember correctly. I'd say in my head as a kid, this lake was probably a good two-acre lake. So this is a lake, not a pond. And, uh, man, it was everything I wanted. And I soon talked my father into getting me a little Zepco 202 fishing pole. I think we bought it at, like, Walgreens or Eckerd Drugs or something like that. And uh, took to fishing. Got a little uh, tackle box full of hooks and stuff like that. And was completely on my own. Didn't know anything about what I was doing. 
I tied fish hooks on with a double knot, you know, two knots, like a square knot, until I learned better. The ways that I learned to fish were through things like Outdoor Life magazine and Field and Stream magazine and by observing the people around me that were catching fish when I wasn't. I started out fishing with corn and quickly realized I could actually catch uh, black bullhead catfish on corn. Soon learned that this, this little pond, this lake, was full of bluegills and that they liked bread. And I learned that not only were there bluegills there, but if you presented the bread right and just a little past where the bluegills were, there were these great big golden fish in there called golden shiners. And that when you cut those up, you could catch more catfish. Or if you caught smaller ones and put them on, you could catch bass with them. By the time I was about 10 years old, I was catching fish left and right. I was filling our freezer with fish from this little pond. And these apartments were a great adventure for me. Even though they didn't have true woods, they had a lot of trees and things like that. In fact, they had a tree. They called the tree with the branch that didn't hold. I don't know how old I was again, but this is this is young. This is this is elementary school. This is where most kids today would never be free to do the things that I was doing. We had kids everywhere, and we all played, and we had our own little social groups, and it was a big enough apartment complex that you know not all the kids were always together. There were different groups that hung out and moved around, and when everybody was away or everybody was inside or doing their homework like they're supposed to, I was generally outside. And there was this tree, this tree, I don't, you know, it's always bigger in your head when you were a kid, but it was pretty high up. And there was this branch, and then there was another branch about the same height, and between the two of them, there was another branch, a third branch, and you could jump from one branch. You had to stand and balance on your feet and jump, and you could grab the upper branch, and you grab that branch and swing your feet, get to the other branch, and then you could pull yourself over. And we kids did that many times. It was like a, a courage test, who had the courage to do it, who didn't. And I just like to do it. So one day I'm out there completely alone, completely by myself, and I jumped and I grabbed the branch. And as long ago as it is, and as many things that are fuzzy around it, what happened next is pretty clear. I heard a loud crack. As I heard that crack, I went hurtling toward the ground. I landed flat on my back. And those of you who have seen this type of thing happen, you know the sound that I made. <gasps> That sound, yes, I couldn't breathe. It was the first time I'd ever experienced that. I didn't ever see anybody else experience that, but there was no one there to run to pick me up to tell me it would be okay. So all I could do was deal with it, and within a couple seconds, it stopped, and I was able to breathe, and I hurt, but I checked myself, and I wasn't bleeding, and I wasn't having, didn't have any broken bones, and I could, I could you know, walk again, and I was fine, and so I got up, and I took the branch with me, and I used it as a walking stick. It was just a learning experience not to do that and hold on to that thought because I'll tell you a story of uh, a person far more foolish making that sound later in today's show. But that whole episode, that, that not a whole episode, that whole time of my life was kind of this foundation that I was looking for more. And in that time, I started doing a lot of fishing with my grandfather. My grandfather on my mother's side was the... Chief of Security for Jacksonville University. Jacksonville University was right across the street from this apartment complex, which looks like it's a pretty bad place to live today, by the way. It is still there. It looks like some of the apartments had uh, a fire and the, the, the roofs were off of them, and they've never been fixed, at least not yet, on Google Images. I may put some of these, these places and links in the show notes on Google Images so you can actually see where I'm talking about today if I get a chance later today. But my grandfather... Uh, because he was chief of security, was able to get a pass so that we could fish off the boat docks at JU University. 
And uh, he started teaching me to fish at a, a better level. He really didn't know how to fish either. He wasn't a fisherman, but he learned enough to help me because he took care of his grandkids. That, that was He was a really good man and a uh, wonderful man. He spent uh, a lifetime literally in the service of his country. He retired a chief uh, warrant officer four with 30 years in the United States Army. Um, and it was only many years later, long after he was gone, that I really figured out what he did in the military was military intelligence. Uh, he always referred to it as just administrative work. That's all he said. I did a lot of typing is what he used to say. And he was a pretty good typist. But So I started learning more about fishing in the river. And I started learning more about fishing in the river and fishing at the ocean. And one of the things my family liked to do was go to the beach because we were only about 25, 30 minutes from Jacksonville Beach. So once I got a little bit better of a fisherman, I always used to take fishing poles and, and stuff like that and go out to the beach. And I'd been out there a few times, and I'd hooked something pretty big. I'm sure they were different things, different times. I caught a lot of fish, but there were times I hooked something really, really big. And every time I did, I would lose it. So my grandfather taught me about something called steel leaders. So I took a steel leader with me the next time I went to the beach, and I was fishing, and I hooked something big, really big. Not huge, but I was probably 11, 12 by this point. And as I managed to finally work this fish in, turned out to be a shark. Not a giant shark, but a pretty decent-sized shark. A shark of about three and a half feet, you know, big enough to have a little fin breaking the surface when it came in and all. And on that day, I cleared out the beach. Yep, the, everybody came out of the water. And uh, I managed to, uh, to basically get the hook free of the shark without getting bit with a pair of pliers. And I grabbed it by its tail like I'd seen people do on the Outdoor Channel. On, not the Outdoor Channel. was it that? They called it Out the Door, I think was the name of the show. It was on PBS, on public broadcasting, because we had no cable. So I had seen people fishing for sharks in the, in the surf, and they would grab them by the tail and drag them back in the water. So I did that, and the shark swam away, and... People wouldn't go in the water for quite a while after that, and that's when I realized that some people are afraid of things that they shouldn't be afraid of. This fish had no interest in bothering anybody. It wasn't big enough to really pose a threat to anybody. But in the minds of adults, rational adults, you would say, this thing was a dangerous animal because it was called a shark. It was really kind of a, a moment that I'll never forget. And I had a lot of experiences like this. Um, the hunting and fishing in Florida was largely around, or I should say the fishing was largely around saltwater and backwater estuaries. And you learn things when you can get hurt. As long as you're not going to get hurt bad enough to need to go to the hospital, or and that's even happened. Uh, but if you're if you're gonna, you know, not have life altering consequences, you might as well get hurt when you're a kid and learn then. So one day I learned a lesson from a crab. We used to fish for crabs at this boat dock that my grandfather used to take me to. Uh, we would we actually fish for fish and crabs. We would, you know, put rods out with live bait or cut bait on them and put them onto the, like the ledge of the dock where they were set up so you could see the rod tip bounce if something bit it. And while that was going on, I would put out these strings with pieces of raw chicken on them and we would pull crabs in and use a dip net to get them. So the one day, I pull up the crab. My grandfather's at the total other end of the dock, and the cooler is, like, right next to me. And I'm like, I wonder. So I open the cooler with one hand, and I just lift the crab out of the water who's being a crab so he won't let go of the chicken. Uh, and I go to put him into the cooler, and he lets go, and he falls. 
Doesn't pinch me. I bet you thought I said he was going to pinch me. Didn't pinch me. He fell straight down, and the tip of one of his claws hit the dead center of my big toe because while on this dock and fishing and being around sharp things, I was wearing flip-flops. So the tip of the claw punctured my toenail and went into my toe a small amount, probably a sixteenth of an inch past the bottom of the toenail, and broke off. And then the crab threw his claws in the air and bailed back into the, 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 the water off the edge of the dock as I wailed the pain and anguish of my toe. And uh, the old man comes back with the crab in the net, throws it in the cooler, and says, what happened? So I tell him, he goes, do we need to go home? And I'm like, no. We don't need to go home. I want to catch more fish and more crabs, and I want that crab back that bit me. I'm not sure, but I did catch a crab later that day that had a kind of rounded-off tip on one of his claws. I'd like to believe that I ate the crab that put the mark in my toenail. That mark, it, it hurt for a day. It didn't hurt really bad. It wasn't something you could really get out. But it took several months for the mark in the toenail to grow out of my toe. Every time I looked at it, I thought about that happening and thought, That's your fault that that happened, and let's not let that happen again. We learned from mistakes when we were allowed to get hurt as long as we weren't allowed to get really hurt. And some of us did, but in the end, most of the time, it all worked itself out. We didn't live in fear of pain. And in this time, finally we moved to the place that was like home to me. I call it the apartments on the swamp. I believe they were called Silver Tree Apartments. They're like called chapel something or I don't know. I'll find those two and put them in the show notes for you if you want to see where they are. I'll put a link to where they are on uh, on Google Earth. But um, these apartments, and if you do take a look at the area, you'll see a lot of new homes with long docks on the St. John's River. and You'll see some really big, nice apartments just north of the apartments that I lived in and all kinds of stuff going on around there. Well, when I was a kid, none of that stuff was there. There was one other apartment complex. There was a, a water treatment plant, and, and that was it. That whole area, which is probably on the order of uh, several hundred acres, was just undeveloped land. And it was owned by somebody, but whoever that somebody was, they... They didn't seem to care if kids played in it. So we had hundreds of acres of these woods uh, that were both swampland and bordered the St. John's River. And where the, the river's edge was was very, very marshy. Most of the river you couldn't access. right? You just couldn't get to it uh, because you would end up you know, up to your waist in mud before you actually got to the river. But there were a few places, like there was a place called the, uh, the Jacksonville Yacht Club, I don't know what yachts were supposed to be there. They now call it Boat Club Drive or something like that, and there's big, beautiful houses on it. Maybe that was always the plan. But when I used to, to go there as a kid, there was uh, some sort of official membership you were supposed to have, but the place was so run down, again, no one seemed to care. So there was a little pier there we used to go fishing on, and that was the one place that we could get to on the river that we could get to with our bikes without getting in trouble for going there. So we did a lot of fishing down there. We caught a lot of fish. Mostly uh, bluefish, uh, croaker, uh, catfish, you know, ocean catfish, uh, hardheads and uh, gaff top sail. Occasionally we get into some sheep's head and some other things like that. Uh, but probably the, the fish that we caught the most there would either be speckled trout and, uh, and croaker. You can look those up if you don't know what either one of them are. Occasionally some sand trout. And we, we, we spent our time in these swamps. And the other place that I would go to was 
an apartment complex that I think was called Woodmere. Now, I just heard from somebody in the audience that said Woodmere is a housing development now there, and it may have been for a long time, but I really believe the apartments that are on the other side of the road from these apartments I lived in were called Woodmere. In my head, that's right. And if you look at those, you'll see a lake in the center of those apartments that looks like a canal, except it doesn't go from one place to another. It kind of starts out with a long taper, and then it goes into uh, two branches around an island, and then a great big pond on, on one side and the other of it. And it's pretty long. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, let's say it's a good walk from one end of it to another, probably close to half a mile. It's like the whole length of the apartment complex, and they had... Built this, and there used to be. It looks like the bridges are gone. It used to be bridges that went out to the island and stuff like that. It was a cool place, and I did a lot of fishing there. And that's where uh, I had some really great experiences. Again, I was filling the freezer all the time with with fish um, because the river was tidal and it was not the best fishing in the few places we could get to. It was only when my grandfather took me that I could actually get to a place that was really good for fishing. But in this this lake, there was what they you know everybody called it the big bass, and people referred to it as a twelve pounder. It wasn't a twelve pound bass, but it was a big bass, and everybody wanted to catch it. Kids and adults alike wanted to catch this bass, and, and no one was ever going to catch this bass. It was the uncatchable bass. I think I was eleven years old when I finally caught that bass on of all things, it's just a plain old night crawler and a jig hook, and I had that fish mounted, and. There were a lot of people that were like, how did you catch that fish? And my response was, I just kept trying. I just knew if I kept trying, eventually I'd get him to take a bait. And that was the thing. When everybody else was doing other things, I was up there learning that little lake and learning how to fish it and learning every way that I could catch fish out of that lake. And I caught fish out of the lake in so many different ways. Um, you know, regular fishing poles, but I also uh, took to using a cane pole for quite a while because there were these, uh, these weed mats that would form on the, on the shoreline. And those weed mats would form in the summertime when the weeds were at their peak. And if you took a regular fishing pole and cast just beyond them, when you hooked a fish, you had to drag them through the weeds. But if you took a long cane pole, you could lift a fish if you had the right equipment with the cane pole up over the weeds. So I learned that. I also learned that catfish like hot dogs and uh, became kind of a, uh, a connoisseur of the black bullhead catfish, which everybody called the mud catfish. And I think that's just because people don't understand these fish because I never tasted mud. I just tasted fish. And I grew up eating these fish and traveling these swamps and catching snakes and doing all kinds of things. And it wasn't like there was never any thing that was really dangerous or shouldn't have been done. Here's some of the things that happened. I had two friends. One was named Jack and the other was named Matthew. Jack and Matt were thick as thieves. They were together all the time. And this might be why I went by JJ more often because two Jacks is confusing, though it's not a bad way to open a poker hand. Anyway, so Jack and Matt one day are walking to the bus. I was ahead of them. I look back and I see them and they're horsing around. And next thing I hear... Matt go, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, he hit Jack. I turn around and Jack's laying on the ground, a car had stopped, and apparently a car um, hit Jack. And so I go running down there to see him, and he ends up being okay. He ended up going to the hospital, he got some stitches, he had a, 
like you couldn't see it, but like a busted lip on the inside. He had to get stitches like at his like the bottom of his where his teeth and his jaw go together, and a few scratches and a school few bumps. And the the driver said he drifted out in front of me, and fortunately, when passing two kids grab assing, this driver had slowed down. That probably made you know minor injuries from where there could have been major injuries or or life and death. But do you know what happened? There wasn't a law passed. They didn't pass Jack's law. They didn't decide that the school bus stop had to be moved or the bus had to go to multiple stops so the kids didn't have to walk anymore. The school had all the kids at the next assembly explain what happened to Jack and said, don't be stupid and don't do this. They used more adult words uh, than that, a little bit more refined explanation of it. But basically we were told, this is what happens when you don't pay attention. So it's important that you pay attention. And when you're walking to the school or the bus or anything else and you see your friends doing things like this, tell them not to do it and always pay attention to the traffic. And they also said, hey, you know what? If there is a place like a sidewalk or another place you can be where you're protected from the traffic, use it. So instead of making it the driver's fault or making it the fault of parents who didn't walk their children to the bus stop, and it was a good walk. It was about a three-quarter mile walk for us from our apartment complex to the corner of the street where we caught the bus. It was the kid's fault because the kid was behaving in a way that they knew better than to behave. And we knew one thing. If anybody got hit by a car again like that, it wasn't going to be Jack because he sure as hell wasn't going to do it. And it wasn't going to be me. It wasn't going to be Matt because we both saw it happen. And we learned from things like that. Now, we did risk serious injury for fun. Oh, my God. We did some really dumb things, things that if I saw kids doing today, I honestly would flip out about. This apartment complex... And some of the buildings were three stories tall. And the walkways in between, so like apartments that I see today, like you go up the stairs and then there's like a landing and you go out to two apartments or four apartments if it passes through and that's it. This thing had like this incredible one building that was like a, a building with a big angle in it. So where you'd think you'd have two, you had one building that made a 90 degree turn and it was three stories where that 90 degree turn was. And it was just like this gymnasium of stairs and uh, banisters and 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 rail and handrails, and we used to go up on the third floor of that and see who was brave enough to walk the handrails, you know, like ten, fifteen feet uh, from one end to the other. And if you fell down, you know, if you fell, if you're going to fall, you could always kind of like fall to the left, let's say, and land on the concrete only three feet down. But if you fell down the other side, you were probably dead because it was a three-story fall. We did this all the time. On the back side of that, there was a stairwell that came up to the people's uh, porches on the back side of the, the building. And if you if you've never lived in Florida, you probably don't know what something is called Coquina Rock. But this is basically the same thing they built the fort called the Castillo de San Marcos out of. And it's basically naturally mined concrete. It's like stone that's made out of shells and sand. And it's, it's hard, but yet it's soft. That's why they made forts out of it. Because if you shot a cannonball into it, instead of it crumbling, the, the cannonball just kind of collapsed into it. One... One, uh, I think it was a French ship, shelled the Castillo de San Marcos and said that when they hit it with the cannonballs, it was like throwing pebbles into soft cheese. So this stairwell had a wall that went up two and a half stories, and it was coquina rock. And at the top of this coquina rock, it was about a four-inch wide, flat, three-sided structure that was up about... You know, as a little kid, you could like barely peer over the top of it. 
When we used to play guns, we'd go up in that tower, we called it, and then that was like a watchtower, and you pretend to shoot your buddy from the tower. We also used to get up on top of that and walk it like it was a balance beam. And we did some other stupid stuff like that. That was, uh, that was what we did. I mentioned uh, the alligator. So one day we were at uh, a friend of mine's uh, dad was a member of a golf course. And because he was a member of a golf course, it was more like a country club. It wasn't just a golf course. They had other things there, including, uh, you know, water hazards on the golf course. But they also had, like, this big lake. So anywhere there was a lake, me and this guy David were going to be fishing. And since he was a, his dad was a member, we could go, and if they asked us what was going on, you know, we'd say, this is David, and his dad's a member, and I won't give anybody's last name even from that long ago to protect the guilty, but... Uh, you know, give them, and go in and check. Okay, yeah, fine. You get, and once they knew us, then they left us alone as long as we didn't do anything wrong. So we would fish until we were bored, and then we'd go back to home or go to David's place or whatever, go fish somewhere else. And then sometimes what we would do is we'd walk the golf course with our buckets, and we'd pick up golf balls. And you could go to the pro shop, and they would give you a dime a golf ball for golf balls that they used on their driving range. So you could make some money picking up golf balls. So one day we go out, me and David, and there was another kid that I just can't remember the name of. I can see his face, but I can't remember his name. He wasn't somebody that we hung out with a lot. And we had like two five-gallon buckets about half full of golf balls, so a good payday going on. We're coming back across the course. I don't remember what hole it was because I don't play golf, and I certainly didn't back then. But there's an alligator, a God-honest alligator, and we see them in the swamps all the time, but this one's like right there. It's not a huge alligator, but it's like, seven, eight feet. It's a pretty big alligator. And uh, it's just sitting there minding its own business with its mouth open. They do that. They gape their mouths in the sun. And the sun's beating down on this alligator. And uh, we decide to throw golf balls at it. So we start throwing golf balls at it. Well, nobody can hit it. So uh, this guy, it was, it was Danny. And Danny was David's little brother. That's who it was with us. So Danny goes around the other side and... Uh, He's, he's throwing golf balls, trying to get closer to the alligator. I finally, like, he, he's scared. So I go over there, and I go up behind the alligator, and I got a couple golf balls in my hand. And I'm just about to waylay this, this alligator with a golf ball. And David pitches a ball from across the lake, and it just skims the back of the alligator. Well, the alligator closes its mouth, and it makes this huge hiss. And I go, it looked like a cartoon. I go like three steps backward and realize he's not going to do anything. So I go three steps forward and I peg this alligator between the eyes as hard as my little self can with this golf ball. And the alligator's just like, damn it. And he just kind of like slinks into the water. Well, he goes in the water and he stays right at the edge of the water and he's laying sideways, mainly because it's a steep drop off. And he's just laying there and you can see his teeth and all. And... Danny and David, and a fourth kid, now that I'm thinking about this, came over, and the fourth kid was the one that became convinced that I had killed the alligator. And I'm like, alligators don't work that way. So he wants to pull the alligator out of the lake. Now, even as kids that do dangerous things for fun, David and I at least are a little smarter than the rest and know that uh, this is not a good idea. So we convinced him maybe we should go get a tree branch and poke the alligator with it rather than actually go into the water and get bit by the alligator. So we get a really long tree branch, kind of a bushy one, and we stick it in his face and he comes flaring up out of there and we went running away and left all our golf balls and 
finally went back and got him, got our payday, and went off to do whatever, whatever kids do with a few bucks. But this was the kind of things that we did. And our biggest thing was forts. We had forts everywhere in the woods, which was basically you get up a whole bunch of torn up old trees and pile them up and make walls out of them. But we did some crazy shit, man. We, we got this book one time, I remember, at the library, and it showed how to make weapons. This was acceptable behavior for young boys, even in the 80s. And one was how to build this catapult. And you used a two-by-four and a tuna fish can, and a, you made a rubber band out of an inner tube, and you, it had wheels, and it was designed to throw a tennis ball because it was just, a, you know, it was like a, 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 a toy catapult. Well, we look at this and go, hey, wait a minute. You don't need all that. If you cut the top off a sapling, it bends over and snaps up. So we set up inside our forts saplings at about head height with tuna fish cans nailed to them, And we went and got boxes full of gravel, and if anybody came to attack our fort, our plan was you pull back the sapling, put the gravel in it, and let it fly. It was like a claymore, because there were big kids that picked on the little kids. And the little kids, instead of going to tell mommy, defended their freaking fort with catapults. This is the 1980s, guys. And I know what some of you are saying. It was a different time. Kids aren't safe out in the woods like that anymore. During this time, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole were running around Jacksonville, Florida, committing mass murder. There has actually not been a time with more people being killed in this country than the 70s and 80s. The crime rate is nothing compared to what it was then. But the odds that you were going to be abducted or killed were still extremely low. So kids were allowed to grow up. And I had a lot of fun in the Florida swamps. There was tons of snakes that we caught. I hate to admit killing some of them, especially some of the, uh, the water moccasins and, and things like that. But... You, you learn as you go, and that regret you know, has stayed with me, and I'm the guy that tries to save them today. I met another friend named, friend named Dave. His name I will give you because he's passed on, named Dave Filsinger. Dave was not of my age. He was not a contemporary. He was my father's friend. And uh, he was, uh, I, I don't even know. I'm guessing he was probably in his early 30s at this time. And he was a snake guy. He had tons of snakes, and he also worked with hot snakes or venomous snakes. And I was nine years old when I first started learning to work with venomous snakes from Dave. And Dave was of the um, the school of thought of a, of a, a pioneer in, in reptiles and amphibians named Carl Caulfield. And he taught me, and, and I became a lover of Carl's books, uh, such as The Keeper and The Kept, Uh, his school of thought on venomous snakes. There's no reason to get bit by one because there's no reason to ever put your hands on one. And, and I learned to work with dangerous things. And even though I did some foolish things as a kid, when it came to truly dangerous things, I learned that there was a place for safety over bravery. And there was a balance between those things. And the person that didn't think you were brave enough probably wasn't brave enough to do most of the things you were willing to do anyway, so not to worry about it. But all of this came to an end with a move to Pennsylvania. And I was excited about moving to Pennsylvania. I really was. I mean, it was, it was everything I wanted because the one thing missing in my life in Florida was hunting. Yeah, I knocked a few morning doves out of trees with BB guns. I'm sure that's illegal, but I'm also sure the Statue of Limitations has worn off. And we built little campfires and 
and, and roasted those over and, and rack, uh, rabbits as well uh, that we, we would take with our BB guns as our little, you know, fake, I call them fake camping trips because you didn't actually stay out there. You went out there until it got dark and you went home so you didn't get your ass beat. Because, yeah, if you didn't come home on time, you got your ass beat, and that's why people showed the hell up at, at home on time. We had more freedom than ever, yet there was still a sense of discipline. And uh, so I wanted to hunt, and I knew I had uncles that would take me hunting in, in Pennsylvania, and that there was a place to go hunting. So the story I told at the beginning is is true. My father uh, was a big uh, believer that you don't trust the government. So he kept a lot of his money in cash. And uh, so we left with garbage bags full of money. Uh, I was I was not quite 14. I was still 13. We piled up in that, that black Oldsmobile station wagon, and we drove from Jacksonville, Florida, to uh, to Minersville, Pennsylvania, with, with, with two big sacks of money and two guns. Um, and I was trusted with that knowledge. It wasn't like it was hidden from me. And uh, I don't know that it was the smartest thing in the world to do, but one way or another, that money had to get there. And when you when you keep money in cash for a certain amount of times, and I learned this about government too, even back then, you can't just go throw it all in the bank. So it was uh, it was an interesting ride. It's one I've never forgot. It was probably the, at that point in time anyway, the most time I spent with my father in a row ever. My father was a workaholic. He worked seven days a week, and he usually got home around 9.30 at night. Um, I'm happy to say I've inherited his work ethic, but I think I've uh, inherited maybe from my uh, my grandfather's a little bit more of a willingness to take time for family. But uh, my dad's a good man. I don't mean to put him down. I'm just saying that's what it was like. And so when we got to Pennsylvania... I had told my friends, I had some really good friends that I did all these adventures with, you'll see me again, I'll come back. Um, I, I'm leaving, but I'll be back before I leave. I'll, I'll, I'm going to go up with my dad, we're going to find a house, and uh, then I'll, I'll, I'll come back. And uh, we'll be here for a couple of weeks, and then I'll leave again. So it wasn't a real goodbye. Well, what turned out to happen was, you have to take a hunter safety course to get your, your hunting license. And the only course I could take landed smack in the middle of my dad's trip back to Florida. So I had to make a decision. Was it more important to see your friends again one more time? Or was it more important to go hunting that year? I think all of you know the decision that I made based on not just the article, but probably knowing me. Um, that was my dream, to be a deer hunter. So much so that right after we got there, I started doing chores with my grandmother, tried to get advances on anything I could to raise enough money to buy my first bow. And I quickly was able to to connive enough money, to, to hustle enough money to buy my first bow and arrows. And I had my uncle, my father's younger brother, took me out to Kutztown, Pennsylvania, uh, to a place called Wheatnick's Archery. And I bought my first bow, which was a Jennings Lightning. And I spent every day shooting arrows into a hay bale. Because I was told, unless you can consistently hit your target, you cannot go deer hunting with a bow. You can't. Because it's a higher level of responsibility. You don't want to cripple an animal. And I was completely dedicated to that task. And those days were, you'd think that like that much, you know, that much work would be hard, but I had so much fun. And it wasn't like I was out there all day. I would get up in the morning. I'd go out and shoot for 15 minutes. I'd go play in the woods. There were woods everywhere. My grandparents' place were surrounded by woods. There was a place called Pine Hill Mountain. 
uh, where I shot my first buck, not my first deer, but my first buck. And there was a, a high school, Minersville area high school, and it was surrounded by woods, and there was an old house, and there was a gun club up there where, you know, the Spirico name was like, oh, you're Spirico's kid. What, what do you got? What do you want? Come on inside. We'll get you. It was a bar, you know, come in. We'll get you a soda. Right. So if I, just by going by the place, I'd have people buy me a soda called a green spot. You can look that up because that's something if you're not from Pennsylvania, I don't think you'd know what a green spot is. Um, but it was just an amazing place. And I, I just practiced. I was so dedicated because I wanted I wanted that opportunity to take a first deer. And at 14, second day, third day of the season, it was the second weekday of the season. The first day was a Saturday. Then you can't hunt Sundays in Pennsylvania. And it was a Monday and then a Tuesday. I was going hunting after school with my uncle. On that Monday, I, I, I missed a deer. Um, I got caught, as they call it. So that as I drew the bow, the deer caught me. She turned her head. And caught me with the bow back. And eventually I decided I couldn't hold the bow any longer. If I didn't take the shot, I wouldn't have a shot. And when I let go of the bow, she jumped the string. In other words, she jumped up near the arrow, passed underneath her. So it wasn't it was a bad shot. Deer just at 20 yards, especially with old school bows, can move faster than an arrow. So I was pretty down on myself. And my uncle said, hey, we're going to put you back in the same tree. Don't get caught again. Do what you can. And about 20 minutes before dark, another doe came through. Put her head behind a tree. I got the bow back, and I had to hold and hold and hold. I had to wait. I had to go and starting, you know. And I finally did give up because I expected her to keep coming. She didn't let the bow down. She came out from behind the tree. I drew again. I put the pin where I wanted. I let the arrow go, and I saw that arrow pass through that deer. I knew exactly where that deer was. If you had given me a dummy deer, I could have drawn with a magic marker exactly where that arrow went through that deer. It was a complete pass through shot, and I heard her run. And I heard exactly what my uncle had told me to listen for. I did exactly what I was told. I watched her until I could see her in the last spot. I knew the spot I saw her last, and I knew the spot where I hit her. But I heard a sound that meant it wasn't going to be a long track. I heard the crash, and I heard the kick. The ch -ch 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 kick. And it was getting pretty dark, and I didn't want to mess anything up. So what I did is I walked to where I got down out of my stand, I walked to where I saw her last, and I dropped a big clump of toilet paper, and I dropped a big clump of toilet paper. You carry toilet paper with you for more than one reason when you're hunting. Where I, So I just knew that we'd be able to find those spots if it was too dark when my uncle got there. And like a cocky kid, I sat down on my, I left my tree stand attached to the tree, but, you know, low, so like a chair, and I sitting on the tree stand with my, with you know, my, my knee up when, uh, when he got there. And he said, did you shoot? I said, yeah. He goes, did you get him? I said, I think so. So I tell him what happens, and we start tracking, and there's blood everywhere. He goes, oh, I think I'm going to have to baptize you as a whitetail hunter tonight. And it didn't take us long, and we found the deer. And I was excited. He flipped out. He let out a, a cry like a Maasai warrior or something. Flipped out, hugged me, starts jumping up and down, and I'm like, it's just a deer. And he's like, so he, st he sticks his finger in the arrow hole of this deer. And starts wiping blood on my face and says, you're a whitetail hunter now. And uh, taught me how to gut the deer. He actually did it for me. He said, this will be the first and last one I do this for you on. He showed me how to take care of that. Showed me how to separate the heart and the, the liver out. And uh, we, we put the deer in the, the back of his Jeep and we went and saw all his friends. And he told all his friends, look, my, my nephew shot this deer. And I was proud, but I It was a bigger deal to him. It was it was later that I learned that many of his friends that had been bow hunting for years had never killed a deer with a bow. And even though he had killed many deer with a bow and he had killed many buck with a bow, 
the fact that his nephew, his 14-year-old nephew, had done what his friends were unable to do was actually a bigger deal to him than to me. And it was kind of like this rite of passage. And I think places where you have hunting as part of a culture, it is kind of where a boy starts to enter into the world of being a man. Or in some places, a girl, a woman, because there were girls that hunted too. Not as many, but there were some. And this was just an incredible place to be as a teenager. There was another place, and this will be another place I put a, a link to if I if I can you know find all these stuffs on Google Earth for you. Uh, I call it the little pond no one really knew about. Everybody knew it was there. Today it looks like it's a lot more visible. At the time it was surrounded by trees. There was a little convenience store across the street from it. And it was in a place we called Primrose, which Pennsylvania is weird. Pennsylvania is so weird in towns and cities and boroughs and villages and hamlets and this stuff. Like what we would call a town might be six little towns in 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 Pennsylvania, like, you know, Minersville, and then Jonestown is like basically these two little roads, and at the top of these two little roads is a place called Primrose. And any normal place, they would just call all of that Minersville, but no, it actually is its own little town and what have you. And uh, you cross the street, you're in another town or another village or another hamlet, and it's really kind of cool because it, it creates this, this sense of community. But up in Primrose, which was up this really steep hill, so before I had a car... I would I would go up there with my bike and I would ride the bike up the hill about to to about to where my great uncle's house was. And that's where the hill got really steep. And then I would just get off the bike and I'd push the bike all the way to the top of the hill and then it was about a mile ride of rel relatively flat little up and little downhill to this 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 lake and this pond. And the, the best part about that was coming home, right? It was a it was a coasting trip all the way home. And I I'd go up there and I'd fish this pond. And people would think it was just this like this dirty, nasty pond because it was surrounded by coal slush. And you can Google that if you want. It's black, you know. But the water was actually really clean and really clear. Now, I'm sure there were heavy metals and stuff in it. This was a place I never ate fish out of. But all I wanted to do was catch fish here. And it was close to home so I could go. Well, it was full of carp. It was full of about two-and-a-half-pound carp. And I used to catch those constantly in the evenings on bread with a number 10 uh, hook. Just pulled into the bread so it would float. The crust was best with a little bit of the bread. And Mayer's was the brand of uh, bread that we used. It was the expensive bread. And my grandmother used to go nuts that I used the good expensive bread to fish with. But it was the stuff that would stay on the hook. And you'd cast this stuff out with an ultralight rod. And you got to where you're pretty good. You could get it way out there. And these fish would come and take it off the top. And the beauty of this was they were fairly large, hard-fighting fish. And me and this uh, this guy named Ricky Tronoski was an older guy, uh, probably my age right now. You know, it was nice to me as a kid. We didn't really fish together. This pond was maybe a half acre, and he'd usually be, you know, 20, 30 yards to my left or my right. We'd take different spots. We'd fish different times. And we would just talk as we would fish. You know, what do you got? Stuff like that. No deep talks. Uh, but we would fish and we'd catch these these carp. Well, we'd always take second rods, and we'd I'd fish for other things. There were channel catfish and smallmouth bass in this place too, and no one really knew that. No one really knew how many fish there were. A ton of fish in this pond, and it was because Ricky would go out to the Susquehanna River fishing, a thing I love to do. And whenever he was out there, he'd have a cooler with a a, a, a pump. And he would bring bass and catfish back from the river and put them in this pond so he had a place close to home to fish. There were also a lot of bluegill in there. So my fishing kit at this place was a couple fishing poles and an onion sack and some tackle. And I would go up there and I would make a little cane pole, like a little, you know, a little 
flip cane pole with a little tiny number 12 hook on it, and I use a little bit of bread, and I catch bluegill. I put them in the onion sack. That was my, you know, my bait bucket. And just tie a rock to it and set it in the water. That way they were alive. And I would use those little bluegill, and I would catch catfish and bass with those while I was catching the carp. To this day, I think the reason I'm a pretty good fisherman, especially I'm good at playing fish, is those hours and hours of catching relatively large fish on small tackle just for fun. And I did that all the time. If I didn't have anything else to do, I went up there and went fishing. It was a pretty awesome place. And it was like this thing hiding in plain sight. There was this other place. I call it the secret place where the native brook trout swim. There was this this uh, piece of the Little Schuylkill River that ran down a place called the Gordon Ogle Trail. And it was orange water. And my grandfather used to tell me how brook trout swam up that stream in the 30s. I thought he was crazy. And there was this tributary or stream that came down out of a place called Blackwood and Sharp Mountain. It joined right where this bridge was where people would stop. And the funny thing, as bad as this water was, there's a spring that came down off that mountain there. And people would go there to get the water because it was such good water coming off the top of, of Sharp Mountain. Uh, they had this big gorge that ripped it in half, basically. The Gordon Arnold Trail went down. And so it really was like two mountains, but they called them both Sharp Mountain. Don't ask me to explain. It's just how it works. And uh, the Yingling Brewery was up on the top of, of Sharp Mountain toward the other end of it, and it was that spring that they drew their water from to make their beer. And it came out down there, and people would park and get Water And there were railroad tracks that went along and trails that went all back up into this area that just was collectively known as Blackwood. And there was an old bridge, footbridge that went across there, and you couldn't get a vehicle across it, but you could walk across it. So you'd park where people got their, their stuff, and, you, and you'd walk. And people hunted back there, and people just took walks back there and walked the tracks or walked back into Blackwood. And there were other ways to get in with vehicles. So you could get vehicles into parts of this area. And... I, w I, I would go back into this place, and my dad kind of took this break from life after working that many years, and he, he spent more time walking there than I did, especially when we first moved back. And he, he walked along this creek, and he came home one day, and he says, I'm telling you, there's trout in that creek. And you don't have to tell me twice, so I get my fishing pole, I go out there, and he comes with me, and we start catching brook trout. These were native brook trout, not stocked, stocked fish. And at that time in Pennsylvania, when a lot of the watersheds hadn't been restored yet, and we still had a lot of problems from the mines and the, the leakage into them from the mines and sulfur and iron oxidation in the water, it was not common to find brook trout. And these weren't little bitty brook trout. These were, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16-inch brook trout that we were catching. And uh, that became another secluded place that I could get away to. This was about... A mile and a half from my house, but my grandmother's where I spent most of my time. It was about five and a half miles, six miles-ish from my grandparents. I had a 10-speed bike that I used to ride down the Pottsville Minersville Highway, across the Gordon Ogle Trail, and to this place. And I would take my bike back into the woods and lock it to a tree so it was out of sight because I was afraid somebody would cut a lock and steal it if it was locked out by where they parked the cars. And they probably would have. There was a lot of petty theft back then. Apparently the place is far worse today. But again, this is, you know, 15 years old, 14 years old, you know, six miles on a bicycle to go fishing, gone all day, in the woods all day, come home. It's not a problem. The only rule was, if you're not coming home, tell us. 
So there were times when I would fish most of these places. All these, There was a lot of other places I used to fish that I'd get to on a bicycle or later a motorcycle. And I'd say, I don't know if I'll be home tonight. And when I didn't come home, I didn't come home. Nobody got worried because I said I wasn't coming home. And I would camp out and make beans and hot dogs and fish on the side of the, of the, the stream or whatever. And there were some other stupidity things that happened there. Um, I do want to tell you about some more stuff, but I mean, this is going long. And I guess it's one of those things you can listen to as much as you want. This is different for me to do a show like this, but I'm enjoying telling these stories. So I hope you're enjoying hearing them. A lot of the stuff that you're hearing about is technically illegal, too. Uh, again, I'm sure all statutes of limitations are up. There was another place we used to fish um, on Gordon Mountain. We just called it the Water Dam. And the reason you weren't supposed to fish in it was a water supply for the town. Now, I know enough about water supplies for towns that there's plenty of them people fish in, and there's no problem. But uh, you weren't supposed to fish in this uh, in this lake. And you really couldn't get a vehicle back there either, except during hunting season. They would open the gates, and it was open to public hunting. But if you had a Jeep and you knew certain angles, you could get back there. So my, my uncle and I started fishing this dam, and at first it almost seemed like it wasn't worth the risk because we really didn't catch much. And one day I'm telling him about how we caught so many uh, smallmouth bass on bluegills. So he's like... We never tried those up there, so why don't we, you know, we'll go trap some bluegills. He knew this place and a, another place called Shaver's Hill. I mean, it's just, if you're from the area, all of this would make sense, but every place is its own place. And there was this little kind of hole-in-the-wall little pond, and it was full of bluegills. So we, you know, we'd pitch a, a minnow trap in there, basically a big minnow trap, and in like 15 minutes you have like 50 little bluegills, you throw them in a bucket with an air pump, and off we go up the Gordon Mountain. And we're fishing them under a bobber about five feet down from this place where we could kind of disappear if anybody came. And uh, right away we catch a yellow perch, a big yellow perch, like a 14-inch yellow perch. Again, if you don't know the species, that's a, that's a pretty good-sized yellow perch. And they're a fantastic eating fish. And we ended up, like, we could go up there and just catch a ton of yellow perch anytime we wanted, and we had this little secret. Well, it all came from a, a, a willingness to keep trying things until you found what worked. And I just wonder, how much do our children not have today because they're not given these opportunities? Whether it's for fishing and hunting, because not everybody likes that or anything, but just to be in the woods, to be out in nature, to just have a desire and have to work at it to get there. Um, a year later, we I got into you know archery hunting really big. Like I said, when I got there, I got that first doe. Um, Actually, that same year, I got my first buck. And, and that was a story that I always just look fondly on. So I'm in this tree. It's like the second week of deer season, not deer camp. You guys know the song, I'm sure, because um, I've played it before. But uh, I'm in this tree, and it's cold. This was like one of the coldest winters. I think this would have been 86. It was 86 or 80, 86, I think. It was a cold, cold year. Um, man, it was cold. And uh, I just wanted to get down. So I, I'm up in this tree in what you call a funnel. So that the, the woods narrowed down like an arrow glass and then widened back out. And that's why I was in that stand. If a deer came through there, I would have to be able to see it. I had my old man's 3006. I'm up on this little platform tree stand. No seat or anything. Just a little, little platform that you stand on. You hug the tree and climb it and you stand on this thing. 
and it's so freezing cold, and you know you're wiggling your toes inside your felt-packed boots that are supposed to keep you warm, and they're just painful, and the sun's barely come up and all, and I'm waiting for it, and then you know first dawn, that's maybe when you're going to see a deer, and that doesn't happen, and we have a plan. My dad will come walking through the woods from behind me and see if he can push any deer toward me, and then he'll proceed down uh, another uh, maybe quarter mile to where my uncle's in his stand, and you know we'll go from there for the rest of the day running mini drives. So when he gets there, man, I'm happy. I'm like, I should get down. He goes, No, don't get down. Because I'm gonna go down to your uncle. Sometimes they'll circle back. So I'm like, okay, I didn't want to. I was so cold. I was so freaking cold. And uh, he gets, you know, he goes down, and it was a spike buck was my first buck. It was just two straight pointed horns. And uh, my uncle sees this spike buck, and my uncle's not going to shoot a spike. So he passes on it, and he says this deer watches my dad, lays down with his ears back on the ground, lets my father walk within about 20 feet of him, and sneaks away like a cat. And he said all he thought is, kid's going to shoot you. And, you know, they hear a shot, boom, and uh, I, I hit the deer perfect heart shot, and it kind of hunched up, and it kind of walked away. Well, recently my uncle had shot a deer and not taken a follow-up shot, and even though it looked like a good hit, we never found it. So when it moved, it went anywhere at all, I took another shot, and it goes down, and uh, my, my, uh, my old man says to my uncle, holy shit, two shots, do you think he missed? He said, no, that's the kid, the kid don't miss. That was a pretty big deal for me when I heard that, that that was said. You know, the kid don't miss. Like, it was like a, a, a respect from, you know, a family member, an older male family member. And that's another thing I think kids don't get. And it was the next year that I took my first buck with a bow. It was a seven-point buck uh, that I still have the rack of. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, it was, it was working hard and, uh, and actually getting things done that, that, that made all of this, you know, worth doing. And in, in this time, we also had what I call the year of the squirrels. This was the first season. So I'm not going all in order here. I'm kind of bouncing around with, you know, memory of this many years ago, but it was the first year that we were back. And as I had mentioned that, trip in the car with my father was probably the most time I'd ever spent with my father one-on-one. I think there'd been some family vacations and family trips where it was me and him and the the girls and my mother and, and other family members, but like just alone. Well, I got an incredible gift in this, this first year back because my dad didn't start another business or anything. For a year, I actually got to be with my father and we did do a lot of hunting together. He wasn't actually that big into hunting. Uh, he was more into just being out there, right? He didn't really care if he shot anything. But this year, there was like this, like almost a plague of squirrels. There were squirrels everywhere. And uh, small game season is, uh, you know, kind of backs up against archery season and runs right up to, to firearms deer season. So I got my deer so early that my uncle's out hunting every day for deer. And me and the old man would just walk from my grandparents' place up Pine Hill Mountain and hunt squirrels. And I think I filled half a chest freezer of squirrel meat that year um, because there were just so many of them. But I got to go out there and spend that time with him. And I'm grateful for that because it was really the only time we ever had like that together as father and son. And uh, that's another thing. I don't think without the 
without the wilderness that that would have ever happened. That's what made him pause long enough uh, to actually take that time. And on that mountain, there was remnants of old mines. And uh, one day, my old man shows me this this uh, this motor, this electric fan motor, at one of these old mine shacks. And he says, if you want to make some money, all you got to do is take some tin snips, cut the wire off one side of it, and pull the copper wire out of it. And I said, well, you know, why not just take the whole thing? He goes, pick it up. It's so heavy because it was like this steel frame. And the steel weighed a lot more. And he goes, you can't get a vehicle up here. You, you, you can't get up. So you, what you can do is you can just haul this stuff out of here. I'm like, well, does anybody care? He says, this shit's been laying here since 1930s. This is before the first, uh, Second World War. No one cares about this stuff. And he says, it's all over here. So I was like 15 when he tells me this, and it's early in the spring, and I'm going to turn 16 in August. And I'm like, that's my car. He's like, I figured that. Because I, I had a deal with him that I could get a car when I turned 16. There was a couple things that had to happen. One, I had to be able to pay full cash money for the car. Number two, I had to be able to pay my insurance for the first six months, which was probably more than a car. And I had to have enough money to be able to reliably buy gas for a few months until I could get a real job because now I had a car and could get to work. So I spent that whole summer when I wasn't doing all this other stuff screwing off um, with a backpack, a pair of tin snips, and a pair of pliers. And I'd go up there with a backpack, and I'd cut that, that old cable and I, or that old wire, and I'd pull it out. And it's, you know, I'd spend a couple hours doing that, and I usually take my 22 with me, and I'd run around and do some target practice and things like that. Uh, if, if berries were in season, maybe I'd pick some berries, but I'd come back down the mountain with a backpack full of copper wire. And I did that all summer long. And by the time I got to uh, my birthday and was able to take my driving test, I had enough money to buy a car. And then I was the guy with a car. Because when I grew up, not everybody had a car when they were 16, 17 years old. And most kids didn't get a hand-me-down three- or four-year-old car from their parents. They got an old beater. In my case, it was a 1975 Pontiac Grand Prix LJ with a 400 small block in it that I paid $300 for. That was part of how I made that copper money work to do that. And it wasn't just copper money. There was grandma money in there and chore money in there and uh, doing things for the neighbor's money in there and, and, and chuchi money in there. Most of you don't know what a chuchi is. In a Ukrainian family, a chuchi is like an aunt that's not really your aunt. She's like an adopted aunt. She's so close to the family, she's your chuchi, right? So my chuchi Amberetsky would give me a few bucks here and there. And every dollar I got, if it wasn't going to buy a box of 22 shells, was being safe so I could get that car. And we had a lot of craziness with that car. And uh, one of the, the, the craziness was we also, you know, kids in the coal region and beer go hand in hand. And I had some connections where I could get people to buy beer. I won't even reveal those even to this day, even though I'm, again, sure the statute of limitations are up. But the whole fiasco with going out and as kids getting drunk on three beers or whatever, because you'd get a case and, like, eight kids, you know, hitting it up. It, it, it didn't go very far, but it didn't take much. But we used to have these beer parties in the woods, and we had a... Uh, Remember I had a science teacher named Miss Kirsten. Miss Kirsten told us in uh, environmental science that you guys to go out and drink uh, alcohol in the in the uh, in the woods. 
Uh, you don't leave your bottles and cans behind. If you can carry them in full, you can carry them out empty. I don't, I don't think maybe she understood that the real problem was that uh, if you had them empty with you on the way out and you got caught, it was evidence. So we had a policy. We pile them all in a place and go get them the next day and take them to the recycling center. So that way, if you got caught with them now, what are you doing with them now? I'm recycling. I'm doing good things, right? The bad influence that looks like the good influence, that was me. But of all the, the, the stories I could give you about teenage stupid drinking parties, this is the best one, and it doesn't actually take place with one of the parties, but it's related to it. So one day, my friend Mikey comes to the house. He goes, I got us a Marlon Perkins net. Marlon Perkins, for those who don't know, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. We used to watch that all the time. Again, it was on PBS because uh, we had like five channels and one was PBS. And uh, Marlon Perkins would go out and hunt these, you know, ca capture these animals and stuff like that. And we'd see this big flock of turkeys. And I talked, if we had a Marlon Perkins net, we could shoot it over the turkeys uh, with, with dynamite. And I won't even get it because I don't know if the Statue of Limitations is up on that with some little, you know, some pieces of sticks of dynamite and some blasting caps and some lead weights, which we could use uh, cast iron window weights, which you can Google that if you want to know what they were. There were old houses that were abandoned that you could pull the windows apart and get these counterweights made out of cast iron that were like these perfect stick in a pipe. Boom, you'd have a Marlon Perkins net. So I'm like, what the hell did you do? So we go in the woods between the high school and the house, and he's got this place with a depression and leaves everywhere, and he pulls this black nylon net out from under the leaves. And I'm like, what the hell did you do? He goes, I go to Marlon Perkins. And he starts stretching out, and this net is huge, but it's narrow, right? I, I guess it's probably like 40 yards long, 30 yards long, but it's only, I don't know, 12 yards wide and I'm like what the hell is this he goes what's shaped like this I don't know you dull a rectangle no no and this guy was this guy was kind of a kleptomaniac and he wasn't the brightest bulb but he had some he had some he was a good hearted person and he was the kind of guy that we made fun of as like the 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 beta in, in the in really the Omega, right? The last, the lowest guy in the group, but we all loved him anyway. We used to call him, his name was Mike Belishka, we called him Bishy. So he's like, what shape like this at the high school? And it clicks for me. Oh, you didn't do it, did you? Yeah, I got a Marlon Perkins net off the top of the batting cage. By the way, he really talked like that. Um, so I'm like, well, shit, we can't take it back. Now, if we try to take it back, we're going to get caught. They know. So we drag it way up into to the hills where these big, huge white pines are. And we put um, like the things that you climb up a telephone pole with, the ones that are screwed in. That the, They used to have them. I think they don't do it anymore because they're afraid people will use them to climb. But they're like a big bolt with a screw point on the end, and they're like a step climb. And you drill a hole, and you, you tap them into a pole, and then it's like a ladder on both sides, like a tree climb. Uh, step uh, for your for your tree stands that screw in, except they were bigger and heavier duty. I don't remember we got them, but we had a bunch of them. So we put them in this one pine tree, and we get up in the pine trees, and we get some double dog clips and some eye eye screws, and we hang this thing probably folded over so it's half its size, so like 20 yards by 12 yards, like a giant hammock up in the trees. And I mean, it's up probably where it would sag the most at about 10, 9, 10 feet. And like the highest point, it's up like 14 feet in the trees. 
and we, you know, we wired it all up and we get it up there. And what we did for quite a while was we would go back there and we would, you know, hand the cases of beer up in this thing and there'd be 20 kids laying in this thing, teenagers, right? Drinking beer, hanging out in this, this hammock in the trees. And, uh, one day we're up there during the daytime doing one of our cleanups. And he's up in this, on this limb in this tree, look like the, the coyote from Roadrunner Coyote. He's going to jump in a net. And remember I said the sound would come back? Here it comes. But we're teenagers. What do you do? You encourage your buddy to jump in a net. Well, finally he does it. And if he had jumped kind of laid out on his back like any normal person would do, I think it, the net would have handled the stress just fine. But he didn't. He went feet first into the net. This put an incredible amount of stress on the eye hooks uh, and the dog clips. And the dog clips became the point of failure because they're made of like a white metal. So like dog clips on one half of the net just broke. And he goes hurtling toward the ground. I really wish I had this in video so I could kind of make the point of how ridiculous this looked. When he hit the ground, the part of the net that held became under tension. And he went flat on his back slam the ground and then like imagine a perfectly straight board flat to his back and the net hurled him straight back up like he was standing on his feet but continued forward and smacked right down on his face fortunately for him he in that he had the time to get his hands in front of him so he didn't really hurt his face he rolls over and he makes the sound. Now you would think his buddies who had just encouraged him to do this would feel terrible and run over, Mikey, Mikey, are you okay? No, we all started laughing and we laughed so hard we hurt. So he finally figures out that he's okay and he gets up and you know what happened? We moved the net because we thought they maybe were onto us and nothing else happened. Nothing else happened. He wasn't mad. We, 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 we ribbed him about it here and there. He didn't run home to mommy. Nothing happened. We got along anyway. And there, there's so many things like that. I've got one more, and then I'll talk about the decision to leave that place as a young adult. The same guy, Mikey, every year we would uh, pull all of the stakes from the tomato plants that my grandfather had and build a fire out of them. And uh, the one year, his brother Nick and these two guys that were up visiting his brother Nick from Maryland and Mike and me are out back of my grandfather's house. We had this area pushed back. We used to shoot skeet. And uh, he, uh, the the fire had gone down, and we had some other wood around there and stuff we'd throw on. It wasn't really burning good. And we one of our nicknames for Mikey was Ears because he had these big-ass freaking ears that stuck out. And I think it was his brother says, hey, Ears, go get some kerosene, get the fire going. No, that was me. I did it. I was the instigator. And uh, he, like, we didn't think he would really do it. And then you know, a couple minutes later, you're looking around, where's the ears? Well, we look in the, the shanty, which is like a, a coal region word for big shed that could be a small house, and the light's on, and you can see him looking out the window, the silhouette with his big ears sticking out. And you can tell he's got the siphon pump in the kerosene can for the kerosene heater, And he's getting some kerosene. Well, figure he's going to come out with like a jar of kerosene. He comes out with like a two-gallon bucket of kerosene. And before anybody can stop him, he walks to the fire. He looks straight down at it. He dumps it. If it would have been gasoline, he would have died right there. 
it had just enough of a delay as kerosene before it kicked in that he took a step back. It literally singed the tips of his hairs on his head and his eyebrows and like the hairs on his arms, but he was fine. And he comes walk comes you know stumbling way backwards. The fire was raging 40 to 50 feet in the air and swirling like a tornado. All of us, except him, were, again, laughing on the ground, pain in our chest, pain in our body, just not wanting to laugh anymore to the point where you really don't, and it stopped laughing, and everybody's, like, breathing really, like, okay, okay, that's it. And then one person would go, and then it would start again. It was about 10 minutes of this. So finally, everybody's laughed out. And uh, we turn and we look at him. He's just standing there with his dull face. And he goes, I don't know what the hell is so effing funny. And he says, you know, the, the, the word itself. And it, it was another five minutes of laughing after that because he really didn't get it. I think we've all had friends like that. And there's things that I dearly love about that place in Pennsylvania. So you might wonder why I decided to leave at 17 and join the Army. You know, my family was nothing really to write home about, especially by this time. This time my, my parents were in the middle of a, a serious divorce. There had been a lot of bad blood. My father had loaned my uncle money, the same uncle that I talk about. He had refused to pay it back, and we're talking about a significant amount of money to buy a house. Um, so there wasn't much the family holding me there, but there was all this, you know, the woods, the, the uh, things. But I came to this realization that, you know, you could live on, part-time job money and chore money and copper scrap money as a teenager and you could do pretty well but that if you wanted a life you would have to have a real job and as I looked around for opportunities it seemed like my opportunities were to go to college I could borrow money to do that um, or to try to get a job at some place like maybe Cresona Aluminum or something it was like a good job for the area work swing shift and you know make $12 an hour back then or find a way to develop myself and to also look around and some of this stuff was fun, but some of this stuff was really stupid. And I was starting to see some of my friends go past the, just this, 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 this carelessness of childhood. And, uh, you know, I watched one go to jail. I, I saw two others that I'm like, eventually you guys are going to end up in jail. Some started to get involved with drugs and a whole area seemed to be, on a downward trajectory. And uh, about, you know, midway through my senior year, I uh, took the ASVAP test. And, of course, then you're on the, the, the targeting list for the recruiters and the Marine recruiter calls and the Army recruiter and the, the Air Force recruiter and the Navy recruiter. And as I talked to everybody, the only one that I didn't feel like was bullshitting me was the Army recruiter. He was telling me, you know, it's not all perfect, it's not all great, but here's how it works out, here's what you can do. And unlike all these other people, we'll let you pick your job before you go in. I'm like, well, what can I do? And he said, with the scores you got, you can do anything. And I said, I want to be a mechanic. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, I want to. I like, I like working on trucks. He goes, you want to work on big ones or little ones? I want to work on the biggest ones you got. So heavy wheel mechanic, 63 Sierra, right there, if that's what you want to do. So I went up to the MEP station. I went through all that stuff. And uh, in the end, I was 17, so I had to have my father uh, uh, sign a piece of paper. And, and by then, we weren't spending much time together. And uh, But I told the recruiter, well, he'll probably be at home around this time. I'm going to be doing other things, but you can go see him. And So he, he gets there, and I was at my friend Heath's house, and he calls and says, so do I sign this paper or punch this guy in the face? 
you know, is he lying to me? And I said, no, he's not lying to you, Dad. I, that's how my dad found out I was. He he knew I was thinking about it. That's how he found out I was actually going. And uh, I left in, uh, in in late summer of 1990, and I've never really been back because I've never been the guy I told you about there ever again. It isn't the way it is. It, it, it's home isn't that way anymore. That place isn't there. It's still home to me in my heart. But the place that I just told you about only really exists is a memory. My father's house is now surrounded by some big giant-ass house and all those woods that you could just play in when I was a kid and all those places we shot guns right out the back door. You can't do it anymore because somebody owns it now. Blackwood used to be the site of what they called the Blackwood Buggy Festival, 25,000, 30,000 people uh, on an annual thing going out there partying for, for, for a weekend. And uh, that doesn't happen anymore, and you can't hunt and fish most of it anymore because it's all been closed off by the state and the railroad company. I just met somebody who uh, literally lives in my backyard now. He uh, works with uh, Nate at Frontier Tactical, and he, he lives on, the, I think, Norwegian Street in Pottsville. I went to Pottsville High School. I mean, it's just right there. And I said, well, you know, I said the good things it had going for it is these types of things we're talking about today. And he said, really, not anymore. And I almost wish I didn't know that. He's like, it, there, there's more crime there than there's ever been. There's still the good old boy politics where people that shouldn't get away with bad things do, but it's worse. Um, drugs are so much bigger of a problem now than they ever were. And uh, people have no real hope there. And it makes me sad. But it also gives me hope because I realize where this guy's living is like right in town, and I know there's still places. I know some of this stuff still exists. There's still people holding on to it. But what I kind of started this show out with today is why can't we have these things again? I mean, maybe some of the things I shared with you are kind of scary to think of your kids doing them and all, but we all got through it. We all got through it. The, the friends that I lost, I lost the things that, you know, It was just going to happen. I lost some friends that uh, that went down a mine shaft that opened up. Freak accident. They were they were four wheeling in a Bronco and it just like they didn't do anything stupid. They're just driving along and it happened to open up as they drove over it. And that's just something from a hundred years ago that 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 happened. It's sad. I had friends that I lost to drugs. Well, all the things we've done to 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 ferret out this uh, this dangerous childhood that that kids used to have. It hasn't gotten rid of the drugs. I think it's made the drugs worse. You, you, you don't really feel like you need to be high when you're when you're in the woods, you know. Or if you do, you smoking a little marijuana is about all you need. Maybe or a beer or two. You, you, you're not getting messed up on heroin and freaking meth. And, and I think that the, the, what really bothers me is not that my small town place has turned into this but that almost all the small town places across America, all the rural places across America, the little towns have, have problems with drugs. There's more there's more heroin in New Hampshire than you can imagine right now. I, I, to give Donald Trump some credit, when he said that during the primaries, I thought he's just trying to get votes in New Hampshire and pretend he cares, but it turns out a guy was right. There's like a major epidemic of heroin in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. You know, it's just not the place you think of as ground zero for a heroin epidemic. And, and I think all of this attempting to to medicate ourselves that, that's going on now with these these you know serious hard drugs that are just 
there's no good that comes from them is from a loss of connection with a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today. And I think a lot of these young men today that, that can't handle adversity, it's because you never fell off a bike and skinned the shit out of yourself and were more concerned about getting in trouble for doing something stupid than you were about getting hurt. Never fell out of a tree, and since no one saw it, it was like it never happened because you didn't want to be told you couldn't go do it anymore. You, you know, you never worked so hard for something that you really wanted that, that that your friends didn't even understand why you wanted it that bad. But when you when you got it, it was everything you expected it to be. You never experienced things that that truly walk the line between life and death. Things that have serious consequences, and the consequences are the best teachers. I think we've lost so much because kids don't grow up in the woods anymore. You know, I, I I have to admit, I think that maybe we were the freest kids there 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 were in 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 living memory. Maybe more so than our grandparents, maybe more so than 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 our parents and grandparents. And because we had such freedom, and I know many of you that are in the, your 40s and, and 50s, you grew up this way, you, uh, 70s and 80s. This was the generation that parented itself. I think we maybe think back to all that crazy shit and go, well, I'm glad we did it, but I don't want our kids doing it. I don't know that we're doing them any favors. I don't know that we're doing them any favors. You know, bad things can happen. Well, bad things happen all the time anyway. Bad things happen all the time anyway. Kids get hurt seriously. Kids sometimes die playing high school football. It doesn't mean we don't let kids play high school football because something could happen. Children die in car wrecks. That means that doesn't mean we don't let children get into cars. So we need to we need to recapture some of this. And I'm not sure how we do it because when I look around right now, I think other than being a landowner, how do you let your kids do this? Where can they do this? Where can they go? And when they have nowhere to go, and in their, their early or their mid to late teens, they're getting into a lot of trouble, not just the mischief I talked about today. Maybe it's because they don't have anywhere to go. Home isn't that way anymore, and my fear is that nowhere is. But I think that it's still, as long as we remember it, as long as we can tell stories about it, we have the hope of bringing it back. Hope you've enjoyed today's adventure through the 1980s from the Florida Swamplands to the Pennsylvania Woodlands. So if you did enjoy today's journey through history, consider supporting the show by becoming a member of the Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get discounts on products you're probably buying anyway. Over 60 companies I have discounts for you on with that. And you get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. You can just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more there. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, all of you active duty and prior service, do qualify for a discount. To uh, thank you for your service, just email me before, not after you join, with uh, TSPC service discount in the subject line. Send that email to Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com. Everybody else, you can just go sign up on the site. Remember, I also do take Bitcoin uh, as payment for MSB. I also take silver, uh, and I am open to barter for MSB memberships. Just email me TSPC in the subject line and uh, give me your offer, and we'll see if we can work something out. It's not been a lot of barter for uh, MSB, but some here and there, and it's uh, been pretty cool for both sides. The other way to uh, support the Survival Podcast member support or member support to support the Survival Podcast is to just do your shopping when you when you're shopping on Amazon through our link. 
That's that's it. I mean, all you just have to do is go to tspaz.com. You'll see a page. It'll give you some various options. One is click here to go to Amazon. You click there to go to Amazon. Then you buy whatever you're going to buy. I don't care if it's oyster shell, crushed up oyster shells for your chickens, uh, or, uh, I don't know, your groceries. It doesn't matter. We get credit for it. It doesn't cost you any money. Uh, at all, it doesn't. You don't pay any more for it. It doesn't really take you any more time. In fact, TSPAS is one letter less than Amazon. So, other than clicking another link, it's it's pretty simple to help us out there. And I also review a product every day on the Amazon item of the day. This one was actually a request from a listener. Said, "What's your favorite hose repair kit?" You mentioned those in in your you know 20 items for prepping show. And uh, I have the male and female uh, hose ends for these uh, on the article today at tspaz.com. These are made by a company called Nelson. They're very heavy-duty metal. And uh, my thing with, with hoses is it's not if your hose will eventually need to have the end replaced, it's when. Uh, I actually have found a incredible garden hose that I think the ends on them are almost, uh, almost indestructible, as indestructible as the hose. It's like the best hose you can get. It's called Waterworks Industrial Garden Hose, and they're available at Home Depot. In that article, I have a link to that hose. I do not have a link to it on Amazon. I have a link on Home Depot. Amazon doesn't sell it. Uh, there's some pretty good hoses on Amazon, but this is the best value hose out there. Even this one, I have had to use my Nelson hose repair kit on. Why? Because sooner or later, something might happen. Like, oh, I don't know, your wife might drive a tractor over the end of the hose. Whoops, sorry, honey. Anyway, so uh, even with that one, but you know, the other thing is, in my quest to find the great hose, I have many hoses on our property, and I have some hoses that are not the best hoses, and those are the ones that you end up with the ends rupturing and things like that, and uh, or the fitting itself going bad and leaking or what have you. And uh, I'm not going to get, because they're decent hoses, I'm not going to get rid of them, and when they have a problem with the end, you just cut the end off and slap one of these things on. Here's a couple things I like about one, heavy-duty metal. It's a big metal clamp that's a two-sided, two-piece that goes on with Phillips screwdriver. That's a good thing because whatever idiot thought it was a good idea to have a flat-tip screw on something that's attached to the to the flexible end of a hose is a moron. Uh, that's a good way to end up stabbing yourself with a screwdriver. So you get good locks, so you can get a good tighten down with it. And it, because it's heavy, when you put it into like a stock tank or something and turn the water on, it doesn't go flying out of there. It stays in there unless maybe your ducks pull it out. So it's just a great product, and uh, they're not expensive. They're seven or eight bucks a piece. I recommend you get a couple at least of both of them. And put them in a place in your shed or your shop or whatever where they're easy to get to, where you know where they're at. And then when your hose breaks, you can just get it replaced. I mean, even if you have a hose that's warrantied, you still have to go to the store to get it fixed. Just put a new end on it and go on with life. Of all the ones I've tried, these are the best, and you can get them on Amazon, or you can support us just by shopping through tspaz.com. Even if you're going to go with a lower-quality product, pick it up off the shelf at you know one of the box stores or something, this is something to have in your preps. Um, it's not something you have to run out tomorrow and buy because the zombies are going to come and you need your hose to work, right? But when it comes to you know basic preparation on the homestead, hoses are valuable. That's why I believe in buying the best you can get. Again, that Waterworks Industrial Grade Guard Hose Red ones, they are freaking bulletproof. You can get them at Home Depot. You can order them online or just go to Home Depot and get them. I don't know if anybody else sells them. Uh, I found them at Home Depot, so... Uh, there's something I buy from Home Depot. And as I finally wear out these other ones, I'll replace them with all those. 
But until then, I'll I'll keep using the Nelson uh, uh, end replacers because it's it's a lot cheaper than a brand new hose. And in fact, they outlast hoses so that when you do have a hose finally give up the ghost, you take it back off. It's not a permanent fixture, and you can use it on another hose somewhere. Check them out and do your Amazon shopping through T-Spaz. Um, next up, the other thing you can do is go to TSP Biz and check out the business directory, the place to find members of this community that have companies and to be found if you are a business owner. Today's supporter of the TSP Business Directory is the Regenerative Ag- Agriculture Facebook group. I actually founded that group. It is a great place to discuss methods and techniques with like-minded producers. Uh, consider joining the community over on Facebook. And there's like 15,000 members of that community. It's less than a year old. Uh, it is awesome. You can get there now by just going to regen.ag. You go straight to the uh, regenerative, regenerative Agriculture Facebook page. That brings us to our closing song. And since today's show went so long, I'm not going to do a really long intro to it. I'm just going to tell you, you've probably all heard this song before. And it makes me think about all the stories we, said, we, we talked about today because it's about growing up in the woods, the country. A Country Boy Can Survive by Hank Williams Jr. You know, I will say this, though. You know, one of the lines in the song is, you can't stomp us out and you can't make us run. We're them old boys raised on shotgun, right? We say grace and we say, ma'am, if you ain't into that, I don't give a damn. Um, you know, I think in trying to set us stomp us out, they're just trying to let us die out. You take away all our places to grow up in and we can't raise our kids like we grew up. Like I said, about the only way I see to do it anymore is to be a landowner. I know there's some places out there, and I know I'm going to hear from you guys that you still live in a place where kids can run in the woods and stuff, and that's great. But there's less of them every day. It's a shrinking, shrinking world. It's up to us to figure out how to bring the wilderness to society, since society seems dedicated to destroying the wilderness. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even to fail. The preacher man says it's the end of time, and the Mississippi River, she's a gold grind. Is up and the stock market's down And you're only getting mugged if you go downtown I live back in the woods, you see A woman and the kids and the dogs and me I got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive And a country boy can survive Country folks can survive I can plow a field all day long I can catch catfish from dusk till dawn Make our own whiskey and our own smoke too Ain't too many things these old boys can't do Good old tomatoes and homemade wine And country boy can survive Country folks can survive Because you can't stop us out And you can't make us run Those wooden and old boys raised on shotgun We say grace, we say ma'am If you ain't into that We don't give a damn 
from the West Virginia coal mines and the Rocky Mountains and the Western skies. And we can skin a buck, we can run a trot line, and a country boy can survive. Country folks can survive. I had a good friend in New York City. He never called me by my name, just Hillbilly. Grandpa taught me how to live off the land, and his taught him to be a businessman. He used to send me pictures of the Broadway nights, and I'd send him some homemade wine. But he was killed by a man with a switchblade knife. For forty-three dollars, my friend lost his life. To spit some beach nut in that dude's eyes And shoot him with my old 45 Cause a country boy can survive Country folks can survive Cause you can't stop us out And you can't make a run Cause when them old boys raised on shotguns We say California and South Alabama and little towns all around this land. We can skin a buck and run a trot line and a country boy can survive. Country folks can.